morning, everybody. Uh, I am David Soren. I'm the lead pastor uh, here at Renovation Church, the church that you are currently attending. Hey, this July, uh, we are spending some time talking about church planting. Uh, that is to help start new churches out of Renovation Church because we really believe in making an exponential impact for Jesus Christ. And we know we can do that through starting new churches. Uh, we are in the process, if you were here last week, uh, of starting our sixth church plant, which is pretty amazing. Uh, it's a church called Branch Church. In fact, I'm going to call the pastor of that church up right now, a Brian Suter. So Branch Church is going to be in Carver, Minnesota. If you don't know where Carver is, because uh, you're from the North Metro, uh, Carver is down by Shakopee, Chaska, right? Okay. Uh, in the Southwest Metro. So we're excited to have Brian here today, and I want to introduce him to you and just uh, ask him a few questions. Does that sound good? Okay, all right. Okay, uh, they never clap for me, in case you were wondering. Okay, uh, <laughs> tell us a bit about yourself, uh, what you do before this, your family, we'd love to just know about you. Yeah, thanks, David. First of all, I just want to say thank you to all of you, Renovation Church, and David, thank you for faithfully following God's calling to be the church that he's called you to be, which also includes being a church that plants churches. We're grateful for our partnership already and eager to learn more. So uh, my wife, Courtney, and I have been married for 13 years. We live in Excelsior, and we have two kids, Everett, who's 11, and Hadley, who's 8. They're going to be with us at the next gathering. And uh, for the last 20 years, I've been a pastor, and the last 17 was at a church called Westwood Church in Chanhassen, where I was a student ministry, then adult ministry pastor, and then a teaching pastor. Awesome. Uh, tell us a bit how you got this call to start a church from scratch, and, and, and why Carver, Minnesota? Yeah, a couple years ago, I was on a sabbatical and had God just plant this seed of curiosity. Could there be a different way of doing church than I was used to? And when I came back from that sabbatical, that seed went a little dormant. But then over the last year, God has used the circumstances that our world has faced and uniquely that our family has faced to kind of re-stir that seed again as we heard the voice of many saying we're disconnected from church, we're disconnected from God, and we thought, could God be calling us to start something new, something unique? And in December, Courtney and I got really clear on that and um, just have felt this sense of absolute certainty that this is our next step. Carver is interesting because Carver kind of found us. We're about 20 minutes north in terms of where we live from the city, but there were some friends of ours who have a ministry center that does a lot of weddings that was available. They were eager to start a church in that context. But it's a wonderful opportunity because Carver itself in the next 10 years is going to grow by 60%. In mm -hmm. fact, it reminds me a lot of this area of Blaine. Mm -hmm. A lot of new housing developments are going out and a lot of opportunity to reach people. Cool. And tell us a little bit about what Branch Church will look like. You know, every church you know, obviously is similar. We all worship Jesus, right? But there's different distinguishing marks and values of different churches. So what, what will Branch Church be like? So it starts with our seed verse, John 15, 5, and where Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So that's where our name comes from. But also we feel a sense of calling to pursue church as a sense of family where we'll have a two-part rhythm where worship and gather and then we'll break out into what we're calling branch homes, which are very similar to your house groups. That's one of the wonderful ways that we look forward to learning from you in terms of how you do that. And right now we're worshiping on Wednesday night because we've faced some limits. That's another time and story. Uh, but we're also going to be breaking out in the fall and Sundays in those branch homes. But we hope and pray that it will be a connective spot for people to connect to the church, to connect to one another, and to just reach their neighborhood, their world around them. Awesome. 
Okay, here's what I want all of you to do right now. If you look under the chairs, just to the left of the Bible, do you see a little, there's a little white card there that says Branch Church. Well, everybody just humor me, uh, grab that. Uh, you can also pull this up on your phone if you want under our app as well. There are a number of ways that you can respond to help church planting, this exponential impact for Jesus. Uh, number one, you can mark on this card that you'd like to receive every once in a while a, a prayer request from Branch Church so you can be in prayer for them. And number two, we would love to send some people to help start this church along with the launch team that they already have. Uh, we do this. Uh, we send people out to our church plants. Listen, I know Carver is not as close as Andover or Moundsview, but maybe you live more in that direction. Or maybe for, usually we send people out for nine months. Maybe for nine months you're willing to say, yeah, I, I want to do something. I need to just follow this adventure with God. I need to do something bigger with my life. Maybe say, I'm going to go. I'm going to just commute to Carver for nine months. I want to be involved and serve and give and be in a branch home. I want to help something get started. If that's you, and even if you're just 50% interested in that, would just write your name down, and Brian would love to reach out to you. Or maybe you just know someone down in the Southwest Metro that could do something like that. If so, we would love to get that name as well. So you can fill this out on the card. You can fill it out on our app. And then when you're done, you can stick it in the box in the back. Or honestly, you can just even leave it just on your chair and We'll pick it up after the service. But we would love for you to help reach more people for Jesus Christ around the metro. All right? All right. Thank you, sir. Okay. We're going to get into... They clap for you twice. They like you so much. Okay. We're going to get into today's uh, Bible teaching. Uh, we are currently in this really cool summer series called The Life of Elijah. And we're studying Elijah the prophet. If you've never heard of Elijah before, he lived about 850 years before Jesus in Israel. And one of the main things that he did is he confronted the evil King Ahab and Queen Jezebel because they were bowing down and worshiping statues, idols, and they were leading the whole nation of Israel astray to do that. And so one of the things that Elijah eventually does is he has this sort of confrontation moment where he gathers most of the country around up on Mount Carmel, and he says, all right, we're just going to do a challenge, a test. We're going to see who the real God is. The real God, either whether it's Baal, the statue, or the Lord, the real God, is going to send fire down from heaven. And of course, the Lord, the real God, sends fire down. But it doesn't do enough to convert the king and the queen. And Queen Jezebel tells Elijah that she's going to kill him within 24 hours. And that's what we talked about last week, because Elijah, because of that, eventually falls into this deep, deep state of depression. And in those dark moments, God ministers to Elijah, and he sends an angel to him who gives him food, allows him to just take time to rest, and then God gives him direction. He directs him to go to Mount Horeb, which is also known as Mount Sinai, and we're going to join Elijah there on the mountain today. So everybody grab a Bible. This is what we do here. So there's Bibles under the chair. Uh, we're going to be on page 245, First uh, Kings chapter 19. If you brought your own Bible, uh, you can use the app as well. In some ways, this is kind of part two of last week's message. God is still dealing with Elijah's discouragement here. So let's take a look at what happens next. So page 245, 1 Kings chapter 19, and we're going to start at verse 9. So he's at the mountain now. It says, There he went into a cave and spent the night. The word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain 
in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also, anoint Jehu son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah to succeed you as the prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Okay, so our friend Elijah He's finally starting to feel a little better, right? Because he got some food, he got some rest, he got some direction, but he shows up on this mountain. Now, interestingly enough, Mount Sinai, this is the same mountain where Moses met with God in a similar way. It's where we received the Ten Commandments. And Elijah is feeling a little bit better. He's not dealing with these sort of dark, suicidal thoughts anymore, but he's still down, and he's still, you can feel his frustration, his discouragement. And so what does God do with him? And we want to learn these things too, just as we talked about what to do in depression last week. And so what I really want you to see today is really four things I think we can pull out of this passage that helped Elijah get out of his spiritual funk, we're going to call that. That's like, you ever get in this spot spiritually where you just feel down and discouraged, and it's like you can't get your passion back for the Lord? That's what we're talking about, and I know many of us have been there, and I think there's a lot of things that we can pull out of this passage to help get out of that place of a spiritual funk. Okay, so let's talk through this. Here's really the first thing that we see happening that I think is helpful if you're stuck in that place, and the first thing is to process with God, to actually start talking out what's happening in your life with God. So look at verse 9. Verse 9, God asks what? What does he say? What are you doing here? Elijah. In other words, what's going on, Elijah? Talk to me about it. Tell me about it. Now, let me ask you a question. Is God, does God not know what's going on with Elijah? Of, no, of course he knows, right? So why is he asking that? Well, it's for Elijah. He's allowing Elijah space to talk, to process, to unburden his heart. You know, so many of the Psalms in the Old Testament kind of read like that. Right? It's almost like venting. It's just humans sharing their heart with God. Like they would talk to their best friend. You know, one of the things that I find is real prayer often doesn't look much like how a lot of Christians pray in public. Ever notice that? Real prayer 
is devoid of any show where you put, look really put together and all these sort of fancy words and lengthy prayers and no one's even listening to. I mean, Jesus himself spoke about that and against that in Luke chapter 20. We, we covered that. Pastor Josh covered that earlier in the spring. Real prayer is when you're honest and you're real about what's on your heart. You know, sometimes real prayer it just looks like this. You're just talking to God going, Lord, I don't, I don't even understand what you're doing right now. I'm frustrated by it. I don't get it. Help me understand. God, help me get through this. Just explain to me what's even happening. What am I, what am I doing? I'm, I'm processing what's actually deep down in my heart. I'm being real with God. And that's what God is allowing Elijah to do because Elijah is actually never going to get out of this spiritual funk unless he can first start to be honest about what he truly thinks. Does that make sense? Okay, let's look to the second thing. The second thing is this. If you want to get out of a spiritual funk, you're actually going to need some space where you are silent so that you can hear God. So if you get in, remember we talk a lot about the roller coaster of faith. If you get into a valley in your faith, there is almost nothing more powerful than a fresh taste a fresh encounter with the living God who truly loves you. But really, there's a great obstacle to this in our modern culture. And fascinatingly, fascinatingly enough, it's illustrated by this ancient text in First Kings. So God is going to pass by, right? Is he in the mighty wind? No. Is he in the earthquake? No. Is he in the fire? No. But it's interesting. We kind of expect him to be. You, know, you think about this, like when you're, you know when you're like really looking for an answer from God on something? I think so often we just sort of expect him to answer us dramatically, right? Like you, you're just expecting some sort of sign from God or some dramatic change of events or some absolutely astounding coincidence that you just could know that that's not a coincidence, that's God. And I think Elijah was probably stuck in this sort of thinking. Now if you think about it, isn't Elijah sort of used to God speaking in the dramatic? Right? How has God spoken to Elijah so far since we started this series? Well, it's through like things like rain not falling, or jars of oil continuously, miraculously filling up, or a boy being resurrected from the dead, or fire falling down from heaven. But see, God wanted Elijah to know that sometimes the most powerful way to hear God is just to be quiet. Let me ask you a question. How quiet is your life? You know, two years ago, I first read about this place in America called the Quiet Zone. It's in the mountains of West Virginia. Uh, there are a number of newspaper articles out there on the interwebs about this. If you want to Google this later, it's actually pretty fascinating. If you've never heard of it, the Quiet quiet Zone is this real place. It's a small area, kind of out in West Virginia, that is designated and designed to protect the world's largest fully steerable radio telescope at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory, and it's designed to protect it from interference. In fact, in the Quiet Zone, because Wi-Fi and cell phone signals interfere with the telescope readings... Having Wi-Fi is illegal, and there's absolutely no cell phone service 
in the entire quiet zone. And so folks that live within the quiet zone boundaries, they use the internet like you would in the late 1990s, right? Like, (laughs) welcome, right? Or whatever. If they try and watch a YouTube video, it'll take 10 minutes just to load like the first 10 seconds. And so they just basically don't do it. And instead, you know what they do? This is crazy. They talk to each other. (laughs) They have real conversations where they look each other in the eye. In fact, the article that I was reading about it, they said the the journalist who was observing them for their article said that they went and watched like a, a soccer game. And they said it was just fascinating because there were all these parents watching the soccer game. And guess what they were doing? They were watching the game. Right? There wasn't like every parent on the sidelines looking at their phone. They were watching their kids play soccer. The parents there never have to yell at their teenagers to put their phone away at dinner. You know why? Because they don't have a phone. And there is a part of you that wants to move there, isn't there? <laughs> right? You know what that is? It's because we have so little space for quiet in our lives. We have so little space for God to speak to us, and yet you crave it. That's what that is. I want you to think about this. How many minutes a day, or maybe I need to ask, how many seconds a day do you have where you're just sitting and thinking in silence? You're not looking at your phone. You're not looking at a computer. You're not watching TV. You're not listening to a podcast. You're not listening to music. You're not talking with someone. You're just sitting, thinking, listening, not looking at anything in particular. For most people, that number probably could be quantified in the seconds, not even the minutes. Right? From the moment we wake up in the morning and you reach for your phone to the moment we go to bed at night and kind of shut off our streaming service as we're falling asleep. Let me tell you something. It is no coincidence that we live such anxious lives compared to the people in America who lived 100 years ago. I want you to think about the lives of your great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents, whatever it was, when they were maybe your age in 1921, 100 years ago. Think about it. They, They didn't have the internet, right? They didn't have a smartphone. They didn't have a TV. They probably didn't even have a radio, and most regular folks at that time probably didn't even have a car. And so when they were, say, washing dishes... Or going about a household chore. Were they watching TV at the same time? Were they they earbuds in, checking out a pot? What were they doing? They were just washing the dishes and thinking, processing, listening. Think about about the commute of the average person 100 years ago, right? Well, many people worked in agriculture. They worked on their farms. They just walked back to their house from the fields. A lot of people, you know, they kind of lived around the outskirts of town, and maybe they worked at the, the local mercantile in town or whatever, right? But they lived outside of town. What did your commute look like? What did you do? You walked home. Maybe you had a horse. And so for 45 minutes on the way there and on the way home, what did you do? You just walked. And you thought. And you processed. And you listen. Our lives 
feel so chaotic, so anxious, in part because we have filled almost every possible minute that God could speak into our lives. Instead, we filled it with noise. So how can you hear God whisper into your heart when you never stop looking at a screen, when you never stop the noise coming in to all of these things that we feel like we have to fill our lives with? You know, I was thinking this week, I think some of the most influential moments I've ever had in my life where God just, I just feel like that was God just speaking to my heart. It was when I was just driving in my car with the radio off. Or it was when I was maybe out on a run. I was in an airplane just looking out the window. We need to be quiet enough to experience the powerful voice of God. So I would just ask you, how can you do this this week? How can you do something concrete? Especially if you're feeling down and discouraged like Elijah. Could you, let me give you a couple options. Could you, uh, when you come home every day, from work or maybe at dinner time, if you're working from home or you, you, you stay at home, could you take your phone and just set it somewhere on the kitchen counter and then not look at it again into the morning? Could you carve out five minutes a day at a certain time to just sit and look out the window? Sit in silence. Maybe pray. Maybe just listen. Could you do that? It'll be hard. You know, I was out, actually, yesterday morning, I was out running. I was kind of running through rural Ham Lake. I guess they're all part. Is there a downtown Ham Lake? <laughs> I don't think there is. Okay. And there's some gorgeous neighborhoods I was running through, and I saw a number of people kind of sitting out on their front porch, and the sun was coming up, and there's just these beautiful fields just looking. It was a gorgeous scene. And I saw a number of people just sitting out of their front porch, you know, coffee in hand, gorgeous scene in front of them. What do you think they were doing? What do you think? They were doing this. Oh, wow. Facebook. How riveting. This is amazing thing right in front of them. And we don't. We just miss it. There's no time. There's no space. What if you just carved it out each day? Well, some of you, one of the things I want to challenge you to do, if you need to just get out, you like to exercise, you like to move, could you this week go out, leave your house, leave your apartment, and go on a walk for 15 minutes or 30 minutes and leave every single device behind? Don't bring your phone. Don't bring that annoying new watch you got that pings you every few seconds. Just, just go with nothing. Like it's 1921. And just walk and process and listen for God. And when God starts to speak to you in the quiet, when you're discouraged, when you're depressed, when you're in a spiritual funk, one of the things you have to do next, this is a hard part, is you have to let God correct you. And that's the third piece here. You know, a lot of Americans today actually worship a false god. They worship a god that affirms every single one of the decisions that they make. If that's, if that's who God is, do you trust me? You're not actually worshiping the true God. That's you trying to be God. Because the real God is going to correct you sometimes because his ways are higher than yours. He is holier than you. Now you think about Elijah. Look at verse 10 if you have it in front of you. So in verse 10, Elijah says a lot of things that are actually true, right? He says, I've been zealous. I'm, I'm working hard for you, Lord. The Israelites have rejected you. They're killing the prophets. Okay, true and true and true. And then comes the lie. Do you see it? 
he says, and I'm the only one left. We heard this exact same lie a few weeks ago when he was battling the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah has convinced himself that he's the only one experiencing this, which is just not true. But we fall for that lie a lot when we're discouraged, don't we? Like, I'm the only one going through this. The rest of you, you just wouldn't understand. But the voice of the Lord, it doesn't say, oh, that's really sad, Elijah. He actually corrects him. He says, you're not the only one. In fact, I have 7,000 other believers. God says, you've got to let go of this lie that's only you, and everything's just resting on your shoulders. And I would tell all of you, if you would take time in your life, especially when you're discouraged, to process with God, to be silent so he could speak, God would speak so many necessary truths into your life. Because probably every single one of us in this room is just stuck in a lie or two or five. And these lies in so many ways are the things, they're the very things that are keeping us stuck in this spiritual funk, just like Elijah. He said, I'm I'm the only one left. And he's just so stuck on this. But when God speaks that truth into his life that he is not alone, it actually, we're going to see, is very invigorating to Elijah. The Lord is getting him unstuck from the spiritual funk by speaking truth into his life. But first you've got to process, then you've got to listen, then you've got to let God correct you. And finally, the fourth thing is this. Number four, when he speaks, you actually have to do what God says. So notice, one of the main things that God is doing in this passage is he's giving Elijah a lot of direction, isn't he, right? He says, okay, <clears throat> now that you're listening, we kind of gone through this, we process, you're sleeping, uh, you're eating again, all these things. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go here, anoint this king, and then you're going to go over here and anoint this king, and then you're going to go over here, and you're going to find your succession. What's he doing? Elijah's down and discouraged. What is God doing? He's giving him something to do again. He's putting him back to work. Because what typically happens in depression and discouragement? What happens is we get stuck too long, for too long of a period, looking inward and looking inward. And what happens is eventually it just paralyzes us from action. But God wants to use you again. The Lord has plans for you again. And he wants you to walk them out. To obey him in faith. And there is such blessing in that. So one of the things you're going to see now as the summer progresses is, if you look at the Elijah narrative, we kind of back up from all of it and we look at his life. We spent the first few weeks kind of building and building and building up to this high point of him taking down the prophets on Mount Carmel. And now for the last two weeks, we're at the lowest of the low point in his life. But what you're going to see here the rest of the summer is the old Elijah is back. Why? Because he did these things. And when God said, I need you to go here and do this, we're going to, okay, we're going again now. He does what the Lord says, and he's back. And that is an amazing thing, because he obeyed and trusted in God. What I want to do now is I want to pause for a few minutes, and we want to share a story with you of someone who's made a decision to trust God, to follow him. In fact, I'm going to call our our baptismal team on stage right now uh, so they can get our baptismal ready. Uh, We believe, as a church, for Renovation Church, of doing baptisms and doing them often. And so we do this every three or four weeks or so as people are coming to Christ and are willing to make this decision. And because baptism is a symbol 
of what happens when you believe in Jesus, when you personally make a decision to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Now, baptism doesn't save you, but it's an important step of obedience for every single Christian to come out and publicly say, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I believe that by following Jesus, that he has washed away all of my sins, and that I am clean. All my sin is gone. It is forgiven. If you're a new believer, and I know a lot of you are, or you've just kind of been putting this off for a while, you can do this too. We're going to do this again in a few weeks, in August. If this is you and you're watching this today and you're going, I need to do this, then I, just, do what we just talked about number four. Do what God says. Trust him. Trust him. You can sign up out in the lobby or you can sign up out on your app. So we're baptizing two people this morning. We have one at each service. Uh, every person that you see baptized here uh, has a sponsor or two. Those are people that have had a spiritual influence on them. And so we're really excited to see this today. And so uh, we are going to have our baptism story now. I will set up our microphone. I grew up in a home where everyone followed God, but not in a way I could understand. We never went to church, and I never knew what it meant to have a personal relationship with Christ. One day, I decided to go to church with my sponsor, Alyssa, and started to understand the meaning. Even though I don't fully understand the word of Christ, I'm learning through this church, and I know I have the support from my fiance Tasha, and our friend Alyssa. And through that support, I turn my life over to our Lord and Savior Jesus. Oh, excuse me, Jesus Christ. Moving forward, I know I'm in great hands. Life will have its ups and downs, but I know He will lead me in the right direction. Thank you. We love this. We, you know, we, we want to do this often, and we will do this often, because we just want to celebrate what God is doing here. And it's just, <laughs> I love it because it's just this perfect representation of, it's not us. We're not earning our way to Jesus. It's that he's forgiving sinful people like us. And speaking of that, I, I want to call your attention to something in this passage you may have just glanced over as we read it. I think you could read this passage three times and still miss this. Would you look at verse 13? in this passage. This is right after the Lord passes by, right? And then the holy, powerful, but gentle, audible whisper of the Lord speaks. 
And right before it, verse 13 says this, or right after it, it says, when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. What is that? I want you to think about this. You put yourself in Elijah's shoes. You've just seen the power of God. Literally, the mountain was falling apart in front of you. And then was shaking the earthquake. It was on fire, right? You are scared out of your mind at this point. And then you clearly hear the audible voice of God. You're hiding in the cave. And you're going out. After all that, you're going out to hear it. And what does he do? He kind of comes out like this, right? Let me tell you something. When the average person sees the Lord Almighty on his throne in heaven, you will not casually walk up to him like, hey, how you been? You have a great summer? What have you been up to? <laughs> Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah the prophet even just has a vision of the Lord on his throne in feeling the weight of his sin in comparison to the holiness of God. You know what he says? He says, I am ruined. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. The elders around the throne of the book of Revelation, they're bowing down to his holiness. And so Elijah comes out hiding his face. Why? Because he knows deep down inside, he's not going to be able to manage looking the Lord Almighty in the eye. And nor is he worthy of doing so because of his sin. And I wish more people knew this. I think the average person in America understands nothing of this. The average person in America just thinks, well, I'm, I'm going to heaven. Well, why are you going to heaven? Well, because I didn't murder anybody. I'm going to heaven because I'm not an atheist. But your good works cannot save you. What about your sin? And the second the split second when you die and you are face to face with an almighty God, the consequences and the weight of your sin in comparison to his holiness will overwhelm you and it will be obvious, just like it was with Elijah. And you'll feel the need to hide yourself because of your sin. But there is a way to be saved. Actually, there's a way the Bible says to confidently walk into the Lord's presence. And Jesus Christ loves you so much that he came to make that way for you. So when you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, the Bible says we can be forgiven of that sin. Romans 10.9 says it this way. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord, that he's the leader of your life, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In fact, the imagery of God is even deeper than that. Look at this. This is from Romans chapter 4. It says, blessed are those whose transgressions, it's like your sin, your bad choices, are forgiven, whose sins are, look at the imagery of this, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sins the Lord will never count against them. Some of you learned about this in Theology 201 this summer. 
or you have in the past. In Christianity, we call this the doctrine of justification. And here's the truth. The truth is that I am sinful. You are sinful. We are all sinful because we have sinned against God. And the teaching of Christianity is that Jesus, in dying on the cross, is covered in my sin and is paying the price for my sin. But through my faith in him, what I receive back is a covering for my sin. So Christian theology would actually say that when you believe in Jesus, you are covered by the righteousness, that's like the goodness, the perfection of Christ. So this is the incredible exchange that happens when you become a believer in Jesus. Some of you that are already Christians, you just need to think of your faith more like this. The exchange is this. Jesus gets covered in your sin. And you get covered in his perfection. And so if you're a believer in Jesus, when the Lord sees you on judgment day, What he sees is not you and your sin. What he sees is the covering of his son's perfection and protection over you. That is amazing. That is the goodness of God. And so I just have to ask you, are you covered by the perfection of Jesus? That doesn't mean that you're perfect. It just means that he got your sin, you got his forgiveness and covering. If you were to die this afternoon... And you met God. What would he see? Are you covered? Have you given your life over to him? That's what he wants for you. He wants to come in your life and radically change it. Because he just loves you that much. He's willing to forgive everything. If you trust in him and believe in him. And if you have never done that before. I urge you. I urge you. To turn your life over to Jesus. Just like we heard that incredible testimony right now. In fact, let's just do this. Let's just have everybody just close their eyes just, just, just for a minute. If you're here and this word and this teaching from these scriptures, if it, you just feel like it's just penetrating and puncturing your heart, and you know, I, I, I don't know if I've told Jesus that I've, I'm, I'm given him my life, that I believe he died for me. I don't know if I'm covered. And you want to give your life over to him to believe that he died for you, and you've never done that before. What I want you to do is wherever you're at, as everyone has their eyes closed, I don't think about that. I want you to just stand up where you're at. And that's just a way for you to say, yeah, it's me. I need that today. I need to be forgiven. I need to give my life to him. Today is the day. If that's you, could you just boldly receive that forgiveness from God and just stand up wherever you are in this room? No one's looking at you. It's just a way for you to say, yeah, I, I, this is what I need. If that's you, would you just stand? I'll give you about 10 seconds or so. Anyone here that just needs to make that decision this morning? If you're on the fence, I encourage you, take a Bible with you. Keep investigating who this amazing God is. And for those of you that are believers, I, I, I really want to challenge you this week to not only do these things of silence and all things, but press into this idea that Jesus loves you so much that he got your sin and you got his covering of perfection. How amazing is that? All right, let me just pray and thank him for that, and then we'll have a final song of worship. Lord, we...
We love you. What an, what an unfair deal. You get our sin, we get eternal life. We're just grateful for that. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room this morning that is just dealing with discouragement. And they're just feeling down. I pray, Lord, that you would speak into their lives, that they would hear your voice anew and afresh. And God, I just pray that we would hear you, and not only hear you, but that we would obey you, and you would move in our lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, I guess maybe we're done. All right, uh, <laughs> maybe I got the wrong. Okay, well, have an incredible week. Um, we're so excited for what God's doing here, and we will see you next week. All right, thank you.